Hey there, I'm Grant Wall. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. I want to thank each and every one of you for joining this new community that started last week with interviews of Tyler Adams and Julie Foudy. This podcast comes out every Monday and Thursday. Today's interview guest is another great one, Landon Donovan, the manager of San Diego Loyal, among other things, joins me to talk soccer and to spend a few minutes asking questions about the coronavirus with my wife, Dr. Celine Gounder, an infectious disease specialist and co-host of the Epidemic Podcast. Before that, I'm going to spend a few minutes discussing the soccer weekend, which means Germany, with my friend Daryl Grove of my partners at the Total Soccer Show. It would be absolutely huge for this podcast growth if you could hit that subscribe button, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little bit of time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. I can't tell you how much that helps early on. You have been absolutely amazing, so thank you. And joining me now is Daryl Grove. How are you, Daryl? I am great. Thanks, Grant. I have already um, hit subscribe and given my five-star review. Good man. Thank you very much. Uh, it's, been, it's actually really been overwhelming the amount of support and uh, everything that's come from people out there over the past week. And you guys at Total Soccer Show have been incredible to work with. So thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, we've enjoyed it so far. So let's talk Germany, man. Yeah. Uh, the Bundesliga back on week two after their restart. And before we dive into some specifics, I want to ask you about something that happened we're recording this sunday afternoon uh today we heard artificial crowd noise yeah. on the bundesliga broadcasts and my question is how do we feel about this i think if you'd asked me yesterday how would i feel about this i'd have told you i'm very much against it because it's artificial and why would we want something artificial blended in i've got to say i didn't hate it listening to it today in the uh the mainz leipzig and the uh, schalke augsburg games it's sort of it did just feel it. It felt a little more normal. It added, it added a sense of normality. I'll put it that way. Better than expected. And I realize I'm a journalist. I realize that I'm supposed to be about truth and <laughs> accuracy. And the fake crowd noise, I didn't mind, like you. And I actually want to do a story, or maybe I'll get an, an interview on the podcast with the person. Because Alexi Lawless explained this on his Twitter. Uh, it's part of the international feed that the Bundesliga puts out. And like, if you're Fox in the US, you can choose to have it or not have it. They chose to have it. And he said that there's an actual sound engineer, like an artistic sound engineer who creates these artificial sounds depending on what's going on in the game. Now, my feeling during the Mines game when they were getting drilled 5-0 at home yeah. was that it would have been more accurate to have just tons of home whistles and yeah. things like that. We didn't totally hear that. Yeah, it, it was almost as if the Mainz fans had uh, given up on the game and had just started entertaining themselves <laughs> with some chants, right? But I think some boobs would have been more accurate at 5-0 down. <laughs> but we'll see where they go with this. And I think actually this will be interesting for me to see what other sports leagues do as they come back to play. And are they going to take yeah. any cues from the Bundesliga and the response? Because... You know, we have the NBA potentially starting up before too long again, uh, other soccer leagues. And, you know, the NBA could be a little interesting because if they play down in Orlando along with MLS at the wide world of sports area, it's going to be not in a full empty NBA arena. It's going to be in, a, in like a high school gym, essentially. Mm -hmm. And I do wonder if that'll work or not. Well, the, the thing is as well, this is why it's 
really fascinating to watch the Bundesliga, not just because there are Americans playing there and it's one of the big leagues, but it's really the guinea pig, not just for not just for soccer, but for all sports, right? In terms of their protocols with uh, with the coronavirus and what they're doing with the broadcast. So every angle of this, I think, is really fascinating because they'll find out what works and what doesn't work, and then other sports leagues will get the benefit of that. True. And I also think it's worth pointing out that it's a small sample size, but in week one, there was not a spike in positive tests after all of that, which is encouraging from a health perspective and a let's continue watching the Bundesliga perspective. Though I did catch you on your Total Soccer Show podcast saying that if Bayern Munich wins at Dortmund on Tuesday in the game of the year in the Mm -hmm. Bundesliga, which we are now going to talk about, might as well just cancel the season. I mean, not officially. I don't think they'll be shutting the whole thing down, but it will it will remove an element of excitement, right? I don't I don't even think Bayern mathematically win the league if they beat Dortmund on Tuesday, True. but we all kind of know what's going to happen if Bayern beat Dortmund, right? We do. Um, and so from a neutral's perspective, I kind of want Dortmund to win this game. Yeah. And, and I'm really excited about the game. 12.30 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday, Dortmund hosting Bayern Munich, uh, four points between the two teams right now, but Dortmund winning at Wolfsburg, doing what they needed to do over the weekend. And I feel like Dortmund actually has a chance to win the league. And I didn't feel that way, you know, not too long before the virus break. And right. is it is it all Erling Haaland or is there anything else that's happening with Dortmund that you're seeing that gives you that encouragement? Yeah, I think the huge uptick in form came with the Erling Haaland signing because they literally didn't have a centre forward before. They were sort of True. playing uh, Goethe or Royce or like various attacking midfielders were playing centre forward. And then suddenly you've got this uh, really tall, really fast, really technical, really ruthless uh, centre forward. And it, it really was the sort of um, the missing piece of the missing piece of the puzzle. Um, yeah, and then I think I think the other thing is Julian Brandt, the form of Julian Brandt. Yeah. Um, he goes sort of under the radar a little bit because he's often the pass before the pass, uh, but he's been the thing that has opened up all kinds of Bundesliga defenses. So uh, to see uh, Brandt and Haaland go up against Bayern, I think is going to be is going to be exciting. Plus, this game features maybe the best left back in the world right now, Rafael Guerrero. Uh, <laughs> Actually, you could make an argument for Guerrero, but Alfonso Davies, uh, the Canadian, uh, another good game over the weekend for Bayern uh, as they end up winning 5-2 against Eintracht Frankfurt. Um, what, What do you make of Alfonso Davies and why he's been able to get so good so quickly for Bayern? Because when he was bought by Bayern uh, from Vancouver... I'll admit, I thought the most likely scenario was that he would be sent out on loan somewhere and not even stay with a team, much less become a starter, much less get turned into a left back, much less become one of the best left backs anywhere. I think it's evidence that it's really hard to judge performances in Major League Soccer, right? And I think there's maybe a tendency to undervalue a performance in Major League Soccer versus a Mm -hmm. league like the Bundesliga. But I'm sure the people at Bayern must have looked at what Alfonso was doing for Vancouver and thought, this is a guy who could contribute to our first team. 
Um, and and that's exactly what he's done, right? Playing left back for Bayern. It's not like playing left back for a team that has to do a lot of defending. It's really right. almost like playing as an extra left winger. So you're in a really advantageous position. Uh, but that's not to say anybody could do it, right? Alfonso Davies has taken full advantage. Um, he's been making all kinds of runs down the left wing and, and into the middle and really be- becoming a star over these past few months. Yeah, it's been really incredible to see the impact he's had and the confidence he's playing with. Um, this is a huge game, you know, and, yeah. and like, obviously I'm bummed out that maybe, you know, the best atmosphere in all of Germany, uh, in Dortmund is not going to be able to express itself, but, and I'm curious to see if there is any home field advantage so far, at least in a fairly small sample size, not many home teams have won in the first two weeks. Yeah, that's, uh, that's been interesting, right? The, the data, like, like you said, the, the sample size is quite small, but the data seems to suggest that the, the home advantage really is all about the crowd. And so, you know, the big yellow wall will not be there for Dortmund Bayern Munich. Yeah. Um, and so I, I do wonder if that is a bit of a bummer for Dortmund. Um, I don't think Gio Reyna will start in this game. You have to realize he still hasn't had a start even though he was supposed to last week injured yeah. himself in the in the warm-up thankfully got healthy enough where he came back in and got about 10 minutes uh this weekend but I, I don't see him starting in this game but i do see him playing in this game and i guess when it comes down to it what do you see happening here in dortmund versus bayern yeah. um the the sort of weird pessimist in me just predicts um, a, a Bayern win just because of <laughs> um, whatever the German word for deja vu is. You can just see <laughs> see it happening all over again. But um, the, the form of uh, Dortmund, we may as well like really uh, get behind it and make it count for something. And I'm going to say at least a draw. I'm going to say at least a draw, um, which is not great for Dortmund, but means that the title race is still on for the rest of the season. I maybe out of more hope than anything have Dortmund winning this game. All right, uh, and and hope we get a title race, uh, seven straight league titles for Bayern Munich. Uh, I thought this might be the season they might they would get challenged, and it's still possible. Let's talk about Tyler Adams. Yeah, um, does not start for Leipzig, which wins five nil at Mainz, but he comes on, plays central midfield, not right back, yeah. which is more his position. Completes 28 of 28 passes, for what that's worth, against a Mines team that was absolutely terrible today. <laughs> um, how much would you prefer to see Tyler Adams play central midfield than right back? I definitely prefer to see Tyler Adams play central midfield uh, than right back. I'm happy just to see him on the field um, and healthy. Uh, but mm-hmm. I think just in terms of the U.S. men's national team, it's much better to see Tyler Adams in central midfield because then he he doesn't sort of end up in this weird position where we're asking him to play central midfield for the national team, but his career is becoming this like Bundesliga right back. You know what I mean? It could send his career off on a weird path if he's forced to stay um, on that right flank. I know he was um, he was on your show and explaining uh, that, that what his position on the right entails. I don't think he complained about it, but I do know that he much, much, much prefers to be in central midfield. So I prefer to see Tyler Adams playing where Tyler Adams prefers to play. Yeah, me too. Uh, we actually visited Leipzig last year, right around this time, maybe a little earlier. And that was right as it was becoming known, or right before it became known publicly that Greg Berhalter was going to try Tyler Adams at right back or or the right back position that Greg Berhalter was trying. Yeah. And uh, I think it's fair to say there was some chagrin in the uh, Leipzig area about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, 
it's nice that he's versatile. I hope he's able to play more central midfield over time. And I'm glad to see that Nagelsmann at least realizes that too. So uh, much better from Leipzig this weekend against an overmatched team than last weekend. And now suddenly they're back in third place again and, and not completely out of it uh, in the title race. So that'd be another reason to, to hope that Dortmund wins against Bayern because Leipzig might still have a shot at that point. That's true. Um, I want to I want to catch on that 28 of 28, 100% passing as well. Often yeah. a 100% passing completion rate doesn't really mean anything because it's just a bunch of sideways passes that go nowhere. But a lot of these Tyler Adams passes were forward passes that, you know, broke lines and, and really accomplished something. Even the uh, the fifth Leipzig goal, it's the, the free kick where Paulson takes it quickly over the top to Timo Werner. Paulson won that free kick after Tyler Adams had got, you know, a forward pass into Paulson's feet. So mm-hmm. these, a lot of these were positive passes that were really going somewhere. And I couldn't help picturing a U.S. national team jersey with Tyler Adams making those forward passes <laughs> through a midfield. You're totally right there, too. I think Tyler Adams, that's one of his things is he's not just a side-to-side passer and doesn't want to just be that even from the position that he plays in. I yeah. think that's... Really important. I remember he had one assist on a goal early on in his time last season uh, at Leipzig that was just a, a beast of a pass. Yeah, I um, that too. And uh, I will also say the nicest other or teammate of Tyler Adams when we visited uh, Leipzig last year was Yusuf Polson, who came over and was like really friendly and introduced himself. And so I've, I've been a total Polson fan ever since. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, lastly, I want to talk about a kind of cult hero for me and maybe for you. Lutz Fahnenstiel, yes. who I think is becoming, for me, a breakout star of the return of the Bundesliga to a bigger audience globally. And I don't know how much you know about Lutz Fahnenstiel's history, but he's interesting for what he does now. He is the sporting director at Fortuna Dusseldorf. He is also in a sort of Jessica Mendoza role, <laughs> calling games internationally <laughs> involving other teams in the Bundesliga. I kind of want to hear him do a Fortuna game sometime if, if they <laughs> let him do that. Um, but do you know his back his like backstory? I do. Do you know I've actually met Lutz van Steel? Awesome. How was he? Yeah, he was charming and wonderful. Yeah, um, I was on a sort of Bundesliga press tour in October last year. Mm-hmm. And we met a lot of Bundesliga executives who were very nice, but very sort of suit and tie and very formal. Uh, but when we had our meeting with Lutz Fannensteel, he was, you know, sitting backwards on a chair, telling us charming <laughs> stories. The man's got uh, very, very long hair and answering all kinds of questions about sort of how he scouts players. You know, you know, I love to get into the nerdy stuff like that. Uh, yeah. Very open about answering questions and about talking about uh, his history. And it is amazing. I, I highly recommend everyone out there to get Lutz von Steel's memoir, which is called uh, The Unstoppable Keeper. <laughs> and Lutz von Steel is the only pro ever to play in all six FIFA continents in his career. Incredible. Which is kind of a cool calling card um, to have. And he, his book is about that. And it's not just that he played in each of these places, but he had crazy stories from each of his places where like when he played in England, his heart stopped during a game when he was on the field and he was basically dead and they revived him and he continued to live and to play. Um, So there's that story. And then he actually spent several months in jail in Southeast Asia when he was playing there on a trumped up, uh, 
gambling charge, like point shaving. He is, um, he is one of those people that things just seem to happen wherever he is. It's not a coincidence. <laughs> but what was kind of cool is because he has been on every single continent and was actually trying to organize a charity game in Antarctica <laughs> to make it all seven, <laughs> um, he has contacts all over the world. And that has helped him in his current job as sporting director because he knows agents everywhere. Yeah, He knows diamonds in the rough. And he obviously is a, a smart soccer mind and he's good on TV. He's done stuff uh, for German television during the world cup. He obviously does the international games for Fox and he's really starting to make his way uh, with a reputation um, as a sporting director. So I'm curious to see where he goes from Fortuna. It would help him obviously if they're not relegated this season. Yeah. I mean, so he, he's famously the man who discovered uh, Roberto, Roberto Firmino. And brought yes. him to Hoffenheim back in the day. I do know there was an announcement in February of 2020 that uh, Lutz van Steel will be leaving Fortuna Dusseldorf at the end of the season. Um, but the the announcement was just that it's for personal reasons, and please don't ask me about the personal reasons. So we have no <laughs> idea why Lutz van Steel is leaving Fortuna Dusseldorf. But if he ends up at another team, they'll be very lucky to have him because of, as you mentioned, that massive network that he has and the eye for talent that he has seems to be like really useful where, wherever he goes. Um, he's also, I know, a big fan of uh, Zach Steffen. It's one of the reasons Zach Steffen has been playing for Dusseldorf this season. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't include uh, Taylor, uh, Taylor Rockwell's tw- tweet from this weekend. Pretty sure Lutz von and Steel and Werner Herzog went to the same dramatic school of line delivery, <laughs> which is fantastic if yeah. you're a Werner Herzog fan. It's, yeah, well. it's definitely the, the way that if you hear Werner Herzog talk about film, he's just got that, that definite confidence and authority with which he speaks about it. And I think that's the same when you hear Lutz van and Steel on the broadcast. He's never like fumbling around for words or for something to say. Like he is very adamant that. No, Erling Haaland was trying to score that goal. He just missed it. There was no, there was no doubt in his mind about what was going on. <laughs> well, we might just have to get Lutz on the podcast here one of these weeks because I think it would be a fun interview. I felt bad because we actually did an interview with him for Sports Illustrated last year when we were in Dusseldorf, and it ended up not making the final cut of the 30-minute video we did where we toured around Germany interviewing American players because like, the director decided it just didn't really fit. And right. like, I just was so psyched. I wanted to interview Lutz. Yeah. So maybe I can find out where that is since it never aired anywhere and resurrect that. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much, Daryl, for, for joining me to start the show here. Thank you so much for all uh, the support you and Taylor have given me. And, and just teaming up on this has been an absolute blast. And uh, let's do it again. Yeah, absolutely. We have a couple guests here today. One is Landon Donovan, and the other is my wife, Dr. Celine Gounder, who is an infectious disease doctor, CNN medical analyst, and co-host of the podcast Epidemic, which you should check out. Big thanks to both of you for coming on. Thank you. My pleasure. So I promise that Landon and I will talk soccer a bit later here, but for the first eight to 10 minutes, we're going to do something that we did in a March podcast when Landon had really good questions for Celine on the virus. She's an expert. I am not. We're in a bit of a different place now, guys. Uh, what would you want to ask these days, Landon? Okay. Well, thanks for having us. Um, congrats on the new pod, Grant. Thanks. Um, okay, Dr. Gounder, so my mind on COVID has probably 
I don't want to say switched back and forth because I've tried to stay conscious not to make any decisions since I don't know what I'm talking about or what I'm seeing, but I've, I've gone vacillated back and forth between different ideas and thoughts. So that being said, um, I can't help but notice I'm watching Bayern Munich play Frankfurt right now. And the German Bundesliga has gone back to play. And as I'm watching the game, I'm watching players uh, wrestling each other in the penalty area, breathing all over each other, falling all over each other. And then the next moment, the camera pans to the sidelines and there's guys sitting six feet apart with masks on. And I can't help but think of the hypocrisy and lunacy in that. So can you explain, is this maybe without having the full context of this game or what's going on, why are we seemingly so hypocritical in what we can do, can't do, and how we're supposed to go about the rest of our lives? Because it just doesn't make sense to me. (laughs) Well, I mean, clearly, if you have one of the players who's infected with COVID, even if they have no symptoms or are before symptoms, what we call pre-symptomatic, Um, they could be transmitting to other players on the field. Um, You know, some of that is mitigated by the fact that they are outside and you have better ventilation outside, but your players are getting closer to each other than six feet. Uh, They're having skin to skin contact, you know, and we all touch our noses and our mouths and we cough into our hands sometimes. And so it's not that the sweat is infectious, it's that we have these respiratory secretions that fall on our skin and we can be um, infecting other people that way when we have skin-to-skin contact. So clearly the players on the field are at risk for potentially infecting one another. I think the real question is to what degree are they able to isolate from others more broadly? Um and, you know, and and that becomes clearly a, a very difficult task. So, you know, within the team, are you able to isolate everybody and not have people from the outside? Well, everybody on the team has, you know, boyfriends, girlfriends, spouses, kids, um, you know, other friends and family that they are probably increasingly coming into contact with. And then you have across teams, right? So I think the idea of trying to isolate uh, exposure um, of anybody on the team becomes a really very difficult logistical nightmare. And so inevitably, you're going to have a player who will have an exposure, who will become infected, and other members of his or her team will become infected as well. Um, And so then the question is, how do you catch that in a timely way? Okay, so one word answer. Should they be playing then or no? Well, I think it depends on what your threshold of risk is. If your threshold that is wasn't that... one word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I don't. Okay, uh, I don't answer in one word. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, continue. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on what your risk tolerance is, and so if you're willing to accept the fact that some of your players are going to get sick. Um, you know, I mean, that's the reality here. Uh, that that's something that you're going to have to accept if you're going to go back to playing. Now, there are ways to sort of reduce that risk. Um, so, what you want to do is you want to be screening players uh, with temperature checks, with symptom screens, um, so that if somebody does have symptoms who might be infectious, you can catch that as early as possible so that they're not infecting too many other people. In the meantime, you know, you want to take them out of play, you want to isolate them, refer them for appropriate medical care for themselves, and they shouldn't be returning to play until they're uninfectious. Um, 
You know, but I think the bigger challenge with this virus in particular is you have some people who will never have symptoms or only very mild symptoms. And so you may not pick them up with temperature checks and symptom screens. And so then the question is, should you be testing? Well, I think it is a gross, immoral use of resources if you're testing players just so that they can play uh, when people who are performing essential services, whether that's doctors, nurses, or people working at the checkout counter in your grocery store or in a meatpacking plant, don't have access to testing. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that needs to be addressed first. And when the public health and medical needs for testing are met, then you can talk about scaling up testing for players um, so that you can minimize risk in that environment. But that is, frankly, not an essential service, and you need to target those scarce resources first to essential services. Yeah. Well, as we've seen recently, what's essential and not essential is very subjective. (laughs) Um, um, So... But I understand what you're saying. I would wholeheartedly agree, even though it's a sport I love and what I've done my whole life, soccer, playing professional soccer is not an essential service. Um, Okay, so you touched on one of the other things I was thinking. So at the end of the day, what this seems like to me is this is a risk assessment. And so every day we take calculated risks based on what society deems okay, what we as human beings deem okay. Um, The most obvious one is we get in our car every day and go drive. So, you know, the idea that you could get in a car accident does not prevent people from going to drive or going to the store or going to work. Um, So at what point do we say, okay, this is a risk we are okay with taking in order to, and I touched on this last time, in order to get people working again, which will also save lives, um, just like we do with the flu, just like we do with driving, just like we do with walking outside and you could get hit by a car, all those other, at what point do we say this is a risk worth taking? So let's take your driving, um, example, because I think that's actually a good example here. Um, So yes, we do get in our car and we drive, but we have seatbelts. We have all kinds of airbags. Um, Cars have been redesigned to reduce the risk, you know, if if you're in a frontal collision. Um, Our highways have been designed differently to reduce risk. We have stoplights. We have all kinds of measures to reduce the risk of driving a car. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing that we haven't done in this country with the coronavirus is there are a lot of things we could have done to reduce the risk. Um, So, you know, and that's, that's the big issue. Uh, Other countries like Germany have done those things. So in a sense, they have put in the seatbelts and the airbags and all of that kind of stuff. Um, And in, in the case of COVID, those measures are scaling up your testing, hiring an army of contact tracers, and having a plan. So the whole point of testing is that when somebody tests positive, that's not the end of the story. You then want to isolate that person away from their family in a safe way where they're also accessing medical care if they need it. And you're keeping them apart from people. So you're, you're wanting to separate infectious people from uninfectious people um, so that you're not having ongoing spread of transmission. And that work mm-hmm. has not been done. You know, so basically right. we were, you know, really slow in deciding what needed to be done. We finally dragged our feet and did it. And then we didn't do it for long enough. And then during that period, we did have the social distancing measures in place. 
we didn't do the things that needed to be done to reopen safely. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. One more question. So I don't take too much of your time and it's, uh, I keep carping back on the same thing. So I want to try to keep this as apolitical as possible, but again, I can't help, but as I watch everything, notice the hypocrisy on all sides. Um, and one, you know, one, I get, well, I guess you've already answered it, but I, I'm just having trouble with the fact that 20% of our workforce soon is going to be out of a job. And for people like us uh, on this call, it's okay for us to sit in our house and not worry about working, although we're all feeling the economic hurt. It's not, you know, I've been very fortunate to make enough money where I don't have to worry about that right now, but 95 plus percent of our population does. So I guess to re I guess I'm re-asking a similar question, but are, are you saying that once we have adequate testing, adequate tracing, continue to use social distancing, people are using masks, uh, maybe even gloves if they need to, then you believe in your opinion that it's okay to get as many of these people back to work as possible. But not until then, I guess, is what you're saying. I'd say not until then would that be really safe. And I think the other thing is we need to start thinking out of the box. So, you know, one big concern is how are people going to pay rent? In some cities, they're allocating hotel rooms to give people hotel rooms who've lost their apartments, um, Mm. who've lost their homes, you know, but that's going to require some political will and some financing. And so we have to decide, look, these people's lives are worth it. And so there are ways to address um, the problems that are occurring in terms of the economic fallout. But we're, we're constrained by the old way of doing things. We're not even thinking of these kinds of solutions. I'll give you another example, you know, in terms of restaurants here in New York. A lot of our streets are currently closed down. And there's been discussion about maybe we can open up sidewalk seating for restaurants where you're able to keep tables far enough apart to reduce transmission. Um, you know, with Grubhub, they've been charging 30% kinds of fees on mm-hmm. takeout delivery. Um and that's a huge that's a huge bite into a restaurant's earnings right. you know so like if you address those kinds of issues there are ways to reopen safely once you have the measures in place and there are ways to address the the financial burdens especially to working people but we need to think about those things and we need to do something to address those things i guess it's mostly exposing before i get to you grant <laughs> it's mostly exposing um our weaknesses as a society, right? I think we live in a pretty amazing country, but we're seeing with the very heavy political divide and then, you know, that's capitalism, right? So Grubhub's saying, oh, well, this is an opportunity for us as opposed to looking out for the greater good and not to not to bag on them, but that seems a little exorbitant to be charging 30% delivery fees. So anyway, thank you for your time. I know you've been all over the place. I see you and hear you all over. So great job. Oh, thank you, Landon. Um, you guys take care. Okay. Thanks. Thank Lee. you. Bye. You guys are good at this, by the way. I'm going to like, they're going to realize that I, I'm not needed on this podcast. I'm not needed as a journalist when the athletes themselves and the coaches can ask the questions. So, Well, when you actually like, you just have to get smart people on. So when you have Celine, it makes everyone sound smart. So quit talking to me. <laughs> I, I will, I will say this, that we had Julie Foudy, uh, on the show uh, in the last episode, and yeah. we talked a little bit about the transition she made from being interviewed 
and uh, you know, being an athlete um, to becoming the person asking the questions in the media. And she's fantastic at it. And I, I'm not just saying this because you're on the show and, and you're my friend, but like, if you want to do the media thing, my man. No, uh, I don't. I, I'll <laughs> okay. stop you right there. <laughs> no, thank you. No, but I think we've I've said this to you before. If you actually genuinely care about the answer, and I think you said to me, ask questions that you don't know the answer to. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times journalists probably ask a question because they want to get a quote that helps make their story what they want it to be, as opposed to like, I actually want to know what she has to say about these things. So that's it. Yeah. No, uh, good questions, man. I, I do want to ask you about the job you do have right now, San Diego Loyal Coach. Um, where are you guys in terms of trying to get back even just training? So this is the, again, this is the part, and I didn't get into it with Dr. Gounder, but this is the part where it's not hypocrisy. It's just so many mixed messages. So USL's league-wide standards, which they have to do because they've got teams in, I don't know how, how many ever, how many states, um, lots of states, dozens and dozens of states, they have to have a sort of league-wide standard protocol. And that protocol right now is training four, uh, four players to a group. Now, the California state protocol for a long time had said, well, you can only be outside if you're with people who live in the same residence as you. So people who live together. Uh, But again, the hypocrisy in all of it, there were people in groups of 10 walking down the beach who I know didn't live together, but then we could only train in groups of four with our team, right? So we're trying to, you have to obviously abide by the rules, but that's where we are right now is we're training in groups of four. So it's long, long, long days for the coaches because we've got to do six different groups, uh, six different sessions with four, four players. So it gets a little uh, repetitive and a little long on the field, but that's, that's the task we have right now. So we're just, honestly, we're happy to be back out on the field and training a little bit uh, just for our sanity. You know, your season had just started when things shut down. How are you experiencing coaching so far? I've loved it. Really, really, really loved it. And I think because already we had had six, seven weeks of preseason and then one week of games. So we'd had eight weeks with the players. Uh, just really being able to make a positive impact on their lives quickly has been really rewarding. So that part I love. The competitive part is so fun. The games are fun, stressful as all hell. Um, my head will look as bald as yours by the end of this season. That is for sure. And I won't even have to shave it, but it's really fun. I mean, it keeps you alive and happy and uh, I've really enjoyed it. That's great. Um, you mentioned the German Bundesliga earlier. We talked about Germany from a health perspective, but I wanted to get your sense from a soccer perspective. Obviously they're you know, the first major league to come back and, and start playing. So they're getting a lot of attention globally that maybe they haven't always gotten. You spent time at Bayer Leverkusen. You went on loan to Bayern Munich. What did you learn about the German soccer culture when you were there? Well, it mirrors their culture in general, right? And I, I think it's the reason why they were the first league back is for the, you know, sometimes getting made fun of for being so regimented and so strict and so by the book and, so process driven, that's what allowed, that's what's allowed them to get back so quickly. So that's that at that time when I was there, it was much more structured. Um, I think the way they play at that time, but now there's a lot more freedom because 
you know, it's globalization and there, there are more players from all over the world. But that league, I mean, the Premier League is, in my opinion, the most exciting league to watch. But from top to bottom, uh, minus maybe Bayern Munich and Dortmund a little bit, that league is really good really really good and it's been really fun to actually focus in the last two weekends and and really watch a lot again yeah i mean there's a lot of young americans there too mm-hmm. uh, do you think their experience is a lot different from yours when you went over at a really young age to germany well they're more prepared and i think their expectations are in line my expectations were i was going to go there and play and be a star and all that because i'd never known any different and i didn't have anybody to to tell me that. So I think like when Gio goes, when Gio Reyna goes or when Christian went or Weston went or um, players go over, uh, there's a young kid here in San Diego who's um, on the verge of going to Europe too. These players are much more prepared, um, but the clubs are also more accepting of Americans. There's no question. So when you have Christian Pulisic come onto the scene like that and then get sold for $70 million to Chelsea, Every club now looks, I mean, not just because of Christian, over the last decade or so, what Americans have done, but when they see that happen, they look at Americans just like they do any other player from around the world. And it wasn't always that case uh, 15, 20 years ago. And what was your experience? You went on loan to Bayern Munich. Uh, You obviously went on loan a couple of times to Everton. How different, can you compare and contrast those experiences? Well, the Everton experience was... I just felt more accepted from, from day one. And then I was given a a real chance from day one. Um, The other piece of that though, that played into it is I didn't have a preseason with Everton. And in some ways you would think that would hurt you, but it actually helped me because David Moyes just took a chance and played me in Germany. We had a long preseason and there was you know, time for me to show, but at the same time, there were established players at Bayern Munich who were going to play over me and should have played over me. So it it was just a different experience. It was more, it felt more part-time always at Munich and in Everton, even though I knew I was going back, it it felt more permanent. Got it. Um, You mentioned Gio Reyna. Obviously there's a lot of excitement right now in American soccer circles about a 17 year old kid who's American, who's getting time in important games for a a Bundesliga team near the top like Dortmund. What have you seen so far from him? He looks the part. Uh, A little different than Christian, right? Just in style and how they play. But when he's on the field, he looks the part. So I watched the last, well, I watched the Dortmund game this morning. um, And it was a shame he couldn't play last week, but he just looks like a real soccer player, right? Like he looks like a guy who belongs on the field. Now they have lots of great players and week to week, you know, is he going to be playing every week? Probably not, but he looks like he's got the potential to be a real soccer player. And what he has, Oh, by the way, in his back pocket is one of the best American soccer players ever. And I'm not talking about Claudio I'm talking about his mom <laughs> um, and Claudio who have, the ability to guide him and help him along the way. So he's, he's got a lot of tools in his toolbox and he has a lot of help, a lot of people around him helping him. How do you feel about, I think we're permanently scarred in this country in a way uh, from the Freddie Adu experience where people think mm-hmm. we in the media shouldn't give too much attention to teenagers and that that actually can hurt their development. But 
I've always sort of been like, because I covered LeBron James too when he was a high schooler, like at a certain point, you're going to have to go through that. Right. And and you either deal with it or you don't. Like, where do you stand on? Yeah, no, it's not the media. It's, it's not the, the media is doing what the media is, wants to do or is supposed to do or is, you know, doing what they need to to sell. That's that's their job or report on whatever they're reporting on. So there's nothing to do with that. Um, now, if a player uh, isn't uh, isn't able to handle that, that they're they're going to have trouble handling eighty thousand people when they go to Dortmund to play a game, right? So if you can't handle that, that's that's a piece of being a, a high level professional player. So you can't worry about that. That's not. It's exacerbated now with social media, much much worse. But that's part of it. I mean, that is that is part of it. And that's why you hopefully have good people around you, people who can help you stay focused. Christian has clearly done a very good job of just staying focused on what he does and not buying into anything, not getting caught up in anything and just doing his job. So that's on that's on the individual to be able to do that. I wanted to ask you, there's been a couple of really good stories in the athletic, which is really killing it on the soccer beat these days. And they've been creative during this pandemic in some of the stories that they've done. And they want, one of the things they looked back at was your goal against Algeria in 2010. And I think you even tweeted this, that it was really cool for you to experience that. Like, why was it so cool for you? Like, what did, what, what did that story do for you? Well, I just realized, by the way, I think we're a month away from, it was June 23rd, right? I think. I think we're a month away today from the 10 year anniversary. Um, So what it did was, so part of the way my brain has always worked and uh, I I see it with other players who are are similar. um, I'm always thinking about what's next. So I don't ever, I've never, I've literally never gone back and watched the Algeria game. Never watched, I've never watched any of my World Cup games. I've never watched, you know, aside from like a little bit of tape right after to prepare for the next game, I've never gone back and watched those games. So I will at some point, because that'll be really enjoyable to do, but I'm always just focused on what's next. That's where my time is spent and my energy is spent. So to actually take a step back and read what people had to say about that moment and what they were feeling gives it so much context because you're living it through your own eyes and your own brain uh, in the context of a team. But to hear people talk about it was really special. And I mean, I was teary eyed the whole time. I had chills the whole time reading it. It was just really special to know that other people experienced it the same way. And, and with that much uh, energy. Can I make a confession? Sure. I was in the stadium that day. And I didn't see it. Really? Not live. Why? Uh, I don't think I've ever mentioned this publicly. Were you Um, writing a, uh, you're writing our our obituary? uh, It's actually kind of crazy and is revealing about what modern media uh, has become, which even then was the case where I had to write my three thoughts on the final whistle. Right. And uh, so I would start writing in the 70th minute. And so when you start actually writing, you try to keep one eye right. on the game, and but you can't always do it. And so I would, I basically, I should have saved this. I had written your obit, like the, oh, and, you and didn't this, say you should have saved that. That'd be really interesting to read. 
the exact same thing happened a year later with Abby Wambach's goal yeah. in the Women's World Cup, where I just was killing you guys. And it doing but I, I kind of my job, I guess. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like cheap shots or anything, but it was sure. just like you know, here's this tremendously di- this yeah. tremendously disappointing moment, and so I was not looking when wow when it happened. I always wondered that. I wondered if especially now, like you used to have some time before a deadline where you would have to get something, you know, when there was new, when newspapers were all the news people read that you had to get your article in, but now it's got to be immediate. So you're, you're, that must be really hard to be writing a story and then you've got to change. I mean that, especially like in a game that's three zero and it ends three one. Okay. You put a little asterisk. Okay. They scored a goal at the end, but like this was either we failed or we were pretty successful in getting through all changed in a moment. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, oh, wow. Another another interesting story in The Athletic uh, was about kind of the legend of Clint Dempsey, and you were quoted in that story. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt Pence, by the way, wrote that. Yep. Um, and really interesting stuff about, about Dempsey, um, including from you. And it, I wanted to ask you about, in the end, you and Clint ended up tied at number one in the all-time U.S. goals record. Yeah. How, how do you feel about that? I feel like it's probably right. It probably makes sense. Um, Clint's like Clint. I actually understand very well because there's a part of me that has what Clint has in him. Um, not, not to the same extent, but that desire, that um, undying desire to succeed at any cost is is the same in both of us and so clint would almost make i wouldn't want to say make up but like like watching the last dance like jordan would like make up stuff in his head to piss him off to get going and clint would clint would find it anywhere he could with an opponent or even a teammate right so if he was like jealous because i had more goals that would inspire him to score more you know and like and i think that's a at the highest level of athletics, that's an incredible quality to have. So here's a question. I've always found it interesting that whether it's Clint or you, or even another Clint, Clint Mathis, who was at a certain level for a shorter period of time, but still at a high level for a while. Um, soccer in America is kind of a viewed as a country club sport or an upper middle class sport in many ways. Very different from the rest of the world. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But you three guys did not grow up upper middle class or in in some ways, even middle class. It was kind of like lower middle class. Mm -hmm. Um, And Clint Dempsey played what he called them in the Mexican league as a teenager in, in East Texas, where he credits that with getting, helping him get tough. And I know you played with a lot of Spanish speaking kids. Mm Mm-hmm growing up like how do we get, i don't think it's a coincidence that all of you were not middle class upper middle class and and i'm just wondering where you how you feel about that is do you sort of how do we get to a point where we become like other countries where it's mostly a working class sport yeah my when you started saying that i was going to say it's not a coincidence so then there's many others josie altador eddie johnson bees you know the guy played in more world cups than any american ever um, there, and there's tons and tons and tons. So 
it's not a coincidence. And it doesn't mean if you come from a middle class or upper middle class family, you can't succeed. Right. But uh, I think there is something we talk about this here uh, with our, with, with SD Loyal. There's something different about a player who comes from nothing, who knows that this is their only chance of getting them, not only themselves, but their family in many cases out of poverty or out of a bad situation when you pit that player against a player who comes from a middle or upper middle class family, probably 99 times out of a hundred, that player from, from poverty is going to, is going to win an individual battle or a battle over the course of time. And that's just, that's the reality in life. That's, that's just the way life is. So how do we get there? Um, it doesn't mean you ignore kids from middle or upper middle class. Um, it's making sure that they understand what they're up against. So Gio Reyna did not grow up in a, in poverty, right? His parents right. are well off. And, but it's very clear that when he steps on the field, he knows what he's competing against and he has the ability to, to turn it up to that level to make sure that he knows how to compete there. Now you mix that with kids who do have that natural, you know, what Clint Dempsey grew up in, what I grew up in, what others grew up in. And you start to make uh, the upper middle class kids understand and you ideally pit them against each other, play them against each other at an early age. So they also have context and understand that life's not easy. Um, And that helps players grow. And, you know, I had a lot of that. I'm sure Clint had a lot of that. I could keep you on here for hours. I've already kept you longer than I told you I would. So thank you. you. I think I did. I mean, these are fun conversations. I kind of forget sometimes we're recording them. But um, thank you. I really appreciate you having uh, coming on the show. And um, let's do it again sometime. My pleasure, man. Happy that you're uh, back on your feet. We all know you would be. And happy to help out. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Landon Donovan, as well as my friends Taylor Rockwell and Daryl Grove of the Total Soccer Show for everything they've done to help get the show off the ground. I also want to thank Nathan McVitie and Zach Goldman for their work with show branding and identity. I'm back on Thursday with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.